0: Undiluted worship. Wow. Is everybody warm enough? Everybody say, I'm warm enough. It may be cold inside, but you wouldn't want to be outside. <laughs> and before I start, uh, just want to thank you uh, as a church, really, for praying for the Alpha course. You know, yesterday we had an amazing day. We were here from 10 till 3 down in the community zone and lots of people there uh, and many made decisions yesterday and were filled with the Spirit and that's just awesome. So I want to thank you for your prayers and that. You know, as you pray, you play a part in that, so really want to thank you. And we're going to hear some more stories of that on Tuesday night at Encounter, so really I want to encourage you to be there, and other amazing stories of what God's doing. You know, God's always speaking, and God's always working, isn't he? Amen. So, back to today. And we're in our second week of our new teaching series, Undiluted. And I've got chapter two. And last week, Leon kicked it off with chapter 1. And he gave us uh, an introduction into into who James was and who he was talking about. And if you missed last week, I really want to encourage you to get the podcast. It, It was amazing. And then I want to encourage you to come and journey with us as we continue to look through the book of James and to see what James has to say. So James, he's the eldest brother of Jesus and he doesn't mince his words. He gives it to us straight. It's hard-hitting. It's to the point. It's neat. It really is undiluted. But it may be just what the doctor ordered. That strong medicine Leon talked about last week. You see, an undiluted faith is the only faith that really works. And James, James doesn't have the loving, compassionate, affirming words like his brother Jesus But this book, it is considered to be a pastoral letter. And aren't you glad this morning that James isn't your pastor? And that we have Leon, who is loving, kind and gentle. No comment there, mate, but there's lots of uh, shaking. (laughs) Actually, actually, though, this reminds me of a time when Leon, in his pastor's role, called me into his office to see him and you know it's serious when you get the call into his office you see it's not a chat over a coffee or it's not a lunch out somewhere actually though I knew what was coming and if we're honest when we get that call we know what's coming and if you haven't had the call I don't want to worry you (laughs) you must be doing okay so so let me explain. You know my story, you know where I come from. Uh, and then coming out of prison um, and everything being okay again, settled at my nan's and, and had some money, you know, life seemed good again. I was putting it back together. But that's when the enemy, that's when the enemy spoke loudest again. He really said, put those questions in. God, did God really do that? Or are you just better now? Did that really happen? And I didn't stop reading my Bible, but I did stop coming to church for a bit. And then I had the phone call. <laughs> and Leon asked me to pop and see him. Firstly, he asked, Simon, you okay? We haven't seen you for a bit. How you doing? And I knew what was coming. And I thought I'd prepared a smart answer. Uh, and I gave him that answer. Leon says, how you doing? Where have you been? We're, we've really missed you. And I'm, Leon, it's, it's fine. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. I'm just having time out. (laughs) And then Jesus often went away on his his own to seek solitude and to pray. Uh, And I'm just doing that. I'm fine. But then what Leon said next has has stuck with me. Uh, And it hit me like a brick. And what he said was this. He said, yeah, but Simon, Jesus always come back. And we haven't seen you for a while. When are you coming back? Because you see, as well as receiving, it's about what you have to give. We're a community here, and that's really important. And those words have stuck me. And I want to thank Leon for, for what he said there. And there's probably many of us who can say the same thing. And you see, that's the, that's the heart of a pastor to look out for and to care for his flock. And I, like I said, I want to thank Leon. And James James is exactly the same. He's not being harsh for harsh sake. And this, this has really helped me in understanding what James speaks through in chapter 2. So we're going to have a look first where Leon left it last week. And that's the book of James and we'll look at chapter 1. And that's just after Hebrews and before 1 Peter if you have a Bible. If you've got an iPad or an iPhone, it's still after Hebrews and First Peter. <laughs> Many of us these days, we don't know where books are, do we? (laughs) So, we'll pick it up on chapter 1, verse 27, and this is what it says. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This one verse totally fits in with what James has to say through into chapter 2. And it's this an undiluted faith is a faith that really works when you share it. And I'll say that again an undiluted faith is a faith that really works when you share it. You see, in chapter one, James is talking about an authentic faith with God. It's about taking a confident stand, it's about what a Christian has. It's undiluted, it's undiluted, and it really works. Chapter 2 is about what a Christian does. It's the outworking of your faith. And this is what James wants to remind us of. An underlearned faith is a faith that works when you share it. But where James starts in verse 1 is on the subject of favouritism. It says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. And I want to spend some time here. Because this is important. You see, faith and favouritism are incompatible. It's almost impossible for you to have an undiluted faith that works when you share it. That's a mouthful there. If you show favouritism. Because straight away you've cast some people aside. And James starts with that statement. With that warning. But then he goes on to ask many questions. In fact in this chapter alone of the 26 verses in it he asks 11 questions and to have an authentic faith an undiluted faith that really works we have to ask questions. We don't question our faith we don't question our security in God but we do question what we do with it and then we must also question why. You see we can all have a tendency to show favouritism. It's something that creeps into our way of thinking, but then, gets, but then it's something that gets so big we're, we're stuck with it. It's all over our culture, where favouritism and superficial judgments are the norm. You see programmes like Pop Idol, X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, Big Brother, I'm a Celebrity, Britain's next top model, Australia's next top model, Lithuania's next top model. (laughs) I'm not sure if Lithuania has a next top model, but you know where I'm going with this. Nearly every country has these types of shows, and it shapes our way of thinking. If we don't look a certain way, talk a certain way, if we don't think the way people want me to think, if I don't do the same things people want me to do, then we tend not to bother with them. Then there's racism and ageism. It's all about favoritism. I wanted to wrap that, but I won't. <laughs> and what James, what James deals with next is a subject of wealth. You see, we judge people or favor people on how rich or poor they are. Verses 2 to 4. 2 to 4 read this. Suppose a man comes into a meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but then say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Right here, a judgment has been made because of an outward appearance. A man, in fine clothes, a man in fine clothes is taken to a good seat whilst the poor man is told to stand aside or sit on the floor at someone's feet. And today, today if that was you as you walked into church and there were only two seats left, one next to a fine dressed person and the other next to a person who looks a mess, wild hair, obviously smelly, where would you sit and they're the questions that we need to ask ourselves if we want that undiluted faith that really works when we share it. You see, because we have to share it with everyone. And James is saying just this in the following verses, verses five to seven: "Listen, my brother dears, my, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God?" God, he promised those who love him. But you have dishonoured the poor. It's not the rich who are exploiting you. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And what James is saying here is that you've got it the wrong way round. You see, you should have done the opposite. Because God has chosen the poor to be rich to be rich in faith, you gave the seat to the wrong person. You sat next to someone who looks good on the outside but could be bad on the inside because they're the ones that are exploiting you, James says, and they curse the honourable name of to him you belong. And for me, James isn't really having a go at rich people. And as Leon said last week, uh, we're all considered to be rich uh, as to other parts of the world. But what James is trying to say here and who he's trying to make a point to is the person making that judgment call or showing favoritism. He's trying to get them to question why they do this because there's often a reason for it, a benefit they think they might gain another way of looking at it is that there's less effort required or involvement needed when dealing with that fine clothed person do we think like that and then verse 8 sums this up perfectly if you really keep the royal law found in scripture love your neighbor as yourself you're doing right love your neighbor as yourself This is why we shouldn't show favoritism, because it's unloving. The royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. It's called the royal law, because if we followed this one, if we followed this one, there would be no need for any other. You see, we're called to stop looking at the conditions of people's lives, but to instead love them unconditionally. To stop looking at the conditions of people's lives, but to love them unconditionally, as God chooses to love us. James goes on then to say in verses 9, and we'll take this through to 13, he says this, 9 to 13. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Verse 12, Speak and act as those who are are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So to show favoritism is to sin. And you're convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. And James makes that point. If you break one law but keep another, you're still classed as a lawbreaker. He's trying to make the point here that favoritism is up there with some of the bigger ones. And he uses murder and adultery. And whilst we now live under the law of grace and not law... It's still really important. You see, sin is still really important. It affects our relationship with God. And we need to be aware of that. And James wants us to know that to show favoritism is to sin. And it's a sin that we can often trivialize or think it's small. But actually, it's huge. It affects people. And James wants us to put, James wants to put us right on that point. And what I think he's also saying in verse 12 is that love is the key. You see, judgment, favoritism, that condemns people. But love treats people with mercy. Love gives people what they need, not what they deserve. And you need to be careful not to judge, it says. As mercy may not be shown to you. Mercy triumphs over judgment always. So... If you have an undiluted faith that really works when you share it, you have to ask questions. Questions like, how do I treat people? How do I love people? And how do I show favoritism to people? And then James, James moves on to another subject. This time, it's faith and deeds. And he's still asking questions. Verse 14 says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Actually, this is probably the most challenging and biggest question James asks. Most of the New Testament teaches that you're saved through faith alone. Paul says it's by grace, through faith, that we're saved. And it seems as if James is contradicting uh, that by saying it's faith and deeds, faith and works. And this has led to many misunderstandings that you can work your way to heaven. So who's right here, James or Paul? Well, I think they both are. And instead of contradicting Paul, I think James compliments what Paul has to say. But then he takes it further. See, Paul is talking about how to know you're a Christian. And James is talking about how to show you're a Christian. You see, we believe in a faith, but then we must believe out our faith. To have an undiluted faith, a faith that really works when we share it, we need to ask questions. And in order to share it effectively, it will also mean often there's a cost. So there's questions and a cost. Verse 15 and 17 says this. Suppose a brother or sister is wearing clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. James is saying here that all, if all you do when people come to you with a practical need is wish them well, and then on their way, your faith is dead. What's the point if you don't follow it through with action? And this is where having a real faith may cost. See, it's not only about praying. As Christians, that should be a no-brainer. But it's also about doing. As Christians, we need to put that into practice. But sometimes it also requires more than prayer. And this is where, if we believe in what we say, we will do what we believe. We will do what we believe. You see, it's easy to say to someone that God wants the best for you, that he wants to help you. But it may be at that precise moment, God has placed you in that situation to show that, to do that. You see, it requires action. It requires cost. And you may have to get your hands dirty. It may mean clothing or offering to food, some, giving food to someone who has none. It may mean a hospital visit when, that's, when you're the last person that wants to go. It may even mean that you stop to listen and have a conversation with someone when you really haven't the time. If we want an undiluted faith that really works, it may have to cost. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith, your right deeds, and I will show you faith by my deeds I will show you my faith by my deeds and James here makes a point someone might say that's all well and good you have faith I have deeds but then says show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do and for me this is an irony moment here see James knows that faith in itself it's unseen it's an assurance in something or someone but it becomes real when we put feet on it, when we put legs on it, when we put it into practice, you can see the evidence of my faith by what I do. And again, it's not about working to achieve faith. It's the outworking of an already secure faith. To simply believe is not enough. This is what James is trying to get us to see. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Good Even the demons believe that and shudder. Wow, that's quite harsh. But James is making the point that even the demons believe in God, but they don't act as if they do. Their existence doesn't measure up to the fact that God exists. And does our life measure up? Or do we believe in God and live out all for him? See, there's a saying If you were to be put on trial to show that you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were to be put on trial to show that you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Something there for us all to think about, me included. And there will only ever be enough evidence if it costs. We have to do something. Hardly anything that is given away free has value but you might say salvation is a free gift and yes it is but it costs Jesus everything and in the same way we're called to take up our cross daily and die to sin so to follow Jesus there's a cost involved for us too and James is making that point on Friday afternoon Friday afternoon Dan and myself headed over to the, to the town centre and before that I was putting the final pieces of my, my sermon together and I was very aware that there's not many um, illustrations in it and also very aware that I needed to get it finished, it was Friday afternoon and at this point I was even thinking about buying a bike and going for a ride, <laughs> those of you here last week uh, will get that. And on the way back from the town, Dan needed to call into a shop to get Emily, his daughter, something. I helped him find it. I actually did find it. He was useless. He was <laughs> and then as he went to pay, I, I waited outside. And it was, this mo- it was at this moment I thought, I'm going to get back to church. I need to work on my sermon. But then, <laughs> But then a stranger approached me. And he was very loud and very drunk. Very smelly too, in fact. And then he went on to share that he was homeless. I was in a rush to get back to church. My sermon needed my attention. But at that moment, I had an opportunity to literally practice what I'm preaching. My sermon went to the back of my mind. And I concentrated on the person in front of me. We had a great sh- we had a great chat. He shared where he was from and the various places he'd visited, and why he ended up homeless. Homeless. I shared what I did and where I was from, and the conversation ended. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> we went on to chat further, and he told me this joke, which is, which is totally unrepeatable in this <laughs> setting. I ran it past D and it was, no, no, no. And I ran it past Dan on Friday afternoon and he actually did laugh. So if you want to know what the joke was, see Dan after the service. <laughs> totally inappropriate. But the point I'm trying to make here, and I want you to get this, the point I'm trying to make here is that I didn't want or need anything from me that afternoon. Apart from my time. A brief moment of my time, a a chat, a conversation. And we did chat and we laughed. And while it it may have cost a bit of my sermon preparation time, I've got a great illustration. I'm (laughs) I'm joking. I totally believe God blessed us both that afternoon. And I thank God for that. But also it was an opportunity that so easily could have been missed. You see, an undiluted faith is a faith that really works when it costs. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter together, uh, starting from verse 21. And it says this, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And you may, you may know both these stories well. You may know them well. And Abraham faces the ultimate test of faith here, where God asks him to give up his son. And Rahab, likewise, as she risks her own life to, to, to spare the spies, to save them. And here we see an undiluted faith that really works when it trusts So questions, costs, and trusts. And actually, right here, the three come together. Questions, costs, and trusts. You see, they're both bound to have some major questions. You see, what God was asking of them was huge. There's also a massive cost involved. But the third thing, the most powerful thing, is the trust that they have in God. See, Abraham and Rahab got it. They have an undiluted faith that really works. Abraham and Rahab are opposite ends of the spectrum. Abraham is anointed, uh, chosen one. Uh, the Bible says a friend of God. And Rahab was a Gentile, not chosen, and she was a prostitute. But here in the book of James, they appear in Scripture together. How amazing is that? They appear together. And what unites them is the one thing that they have in common. And that's their trust in God. Their trust. Their trust puts God first. It puts God first in front of what mattered the most to them. And do we trust God enough to give him control of the things that matter most to us? Do we do that? Are we prepared to lay everything down for God? Whatever the cost see an undiluted faith is a faith that really works when we trust and that's when we trust wholeheartedly when we trust totally when we're prepared to lay everything down and as I come to a close I want to ask Leon to to come back and the team we're going to share communion together this morning but before that I want to reflect on exactly what an undiluted faith looks like, what it looks like when you share it. And for me, for me right now, we're going to look at Jesus because Jesus is the only place to look. You see, Jesus came to change things, He came to change things, He came to get us to ask questions. Why are you doing things that way? You need to question that. Jesus modeled that. We're called to question things injustice, poverty, whatever it may be, we're called to question. But then he came to serve, he came to lay down his life for us all so that we might live. There was a huge cost involved. He did something about it, he put it into practice. And if we're to question poverty, if we're to question injustice, if those things matter to you, we're called to do something about it. And that's going to require a cost. But then he also came so that we could trust him. If we put our total faith in him, he will never let us down the Bible says that he will never leave or forsake us and as we remember what Jesus did I want to ask the servers to come and and start distributing at this point as we look and think about what Jesus did I want us to think about those questions I want us to think have we got an undiluted faith that really works when we share it because if we have we will ask questions. We will ask, we will ask questions. And we will want to get involved. We want to get involved and that may mean a cost. But ultimately, ultimately we do it because we trust God. So there's questions. There's a cost. And there's a trust. And I want to leave you with those. Leave you with those as we reflect and head into communion. Leon's going to lead that through. But let's look at Jesus. Let's look at how he modeled his life. And then let's continue to ask those questions in our life. What do we want to see changed? How are we going to change it? And then how do we trust God in that? Questions, costs, and trusts.